Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with Australia's biggest-selling non-fiction author, Peter Fitzsimons. Peter Fitzsimons is well known to many as a former Wallaby representative, a newspaper columnist, a broadcaster, and the author of biographies of sports personalities and others. At the festival, he joined us from Sydney to talk about his latest book, Gallipoli, 100 years on from that World War I campaign, which defined the nations of Australia and New Zealand. His session was supported by Platinum patrons Betsy and Michael Benjamin, and we hope you enjoy listening to it. Welcome, welcome along. A big round of applause for Peter Fitzsimons. Thank you. Thanks very much, Graham. And at Graham's suggestion, I'm just going to do 20 minutes or so freestanding and then go back to Graham and take, take questions and uh, whatever else you want to throw at me. It, uh, it's, it, I do have one other claim to fame in Australia, I might say, and it's for that reason, uh, that claim to fame in Australia, that I feel so comfortable among you Kiwis. Because in Australia, I am known, my wife is the anchor of the uh, co-host of the television show, Today Show, uh, going out seven and a half hours every morning. And I'm told by my mates the fact that I'm married to Lisa makes me the president of the Australian men punching well above their weight club. <laughs> and I'm looking around here and I'm thinking this could be the clubhouse of New Zealand men punching well above their weight. Everywhere I look, I see beautiful women and New Zealand men who fell out of the ugly tree and got hit by every branch on the way down. <laughs> Uh, you are my kind of people. This is my kind of uh, kind of uh, crowd. In terms of uh, uh, the welcome I've received, it was one. I was a bit stunned last night in this theatre. You know, tier after tier, something like two thousand people here for the Auckland Writers Festival. So it's a big deal, and I was very impressed. And I'm amazed, frankly, at how many people have turned up today. I can't help but compare the welcome I have received here with the lack of welcome I received in 1990 when the Wallabies were touring. My sister-in-law, I tell you this, it's funny that I should be here 25 years later talking about my 26 books because at that point my sister-in-law was touring with the touring Rembrandt exhibition and she was a curator. She's now the curator at New South Wales Art Gallery but at the time that I came through with the Wallabies she was uh, touring with the Rembrandt exhibition invited me to the opening night soiree which was on the Friday night before the second test and so there I got, got on my glad rag. She gave me strict instruction how to wear the black tie properly, how to hold the champagne glass by the stem and we don't guzzle and throw it down our throat. We sip and we converse and we move on. And I was desperately trying to fit in with the glitterati of the New Zealand arts world there at the opening of the Rembrandt exhibition, Auckland City Art Gallery. Couldn't help but notice the executive director general of the Auckland City Art Gallery kept sneaking glances at me. What kind of a Neanderthal is this who has wandered into this art gallery by mistake? I managed to work into the conversation. Actually, I have just finished my first book. And he immediately brightened up, congratulated me, and encouraged me to read another one. <laughs> and 25 years later, here I am. Uh, so I will take a Dennis Lilly-like run-up to the writing of Gallipoli, if I may. And I've got to be careful on this because I have very strong views on it and I've written it, you know, mostly for an Australian audience, to be fair. And I, it's a sort of a thing like... 
Uh, at one point, uh, one, of, one of your all-black captains came to Australia and started bagging one of our coaches in, a, in the public domain, and it didn't go down very well because we bagged that coach. We don't want him to bag. And so it's like you're, I'm on the board, for example, I'm on the board of Ausflag. So I'm very passionate that Australia should have a flag of our own. I love the line from Jerry Seinfeld when he came out to Australia in the year 2000. He said, I love your flag. Great Britain at night. And so while I can say all kinds of things to get up the noses of my fellow Australians, it would be like my damn high to say the same to you Kiwis, because I'm a guest in your fine country. But on the, on the subject of Gallipoli, it's always amazing, I mean, I've said this many times in Australia, and this is in Australian history, that Australia's military record is, if I may say, pretty impressive, most particularly in that Second World War. You have, the, obviously, the Germans going into Poland and charging, charging through Poland, going through the Low Countries, into, into Belgium, Luxembourg, Belgium, out and through France, all through North Africa, and the Germans just bang, 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 knock over regime after regime, army after army after army, till they get to the Australians at Tobruk. First time they ever stopped the Australians, stopped them. The Japanese, 7th of December 1941, dropped the bombs on Pearl Harbour. 12 hours later, dropping bombs on the Philippines, into Indochina, down through the Malaysian Peninsula. Down, knock them over, knock them over. Singapore falls over on the 15th of February 42. No army can stop them till they get to the Australians in New Guinea in July of 1942, and they're stopped for the first time at Milne Bay and then Battle of Kokoda. So it's odd, and it's always been odd to me with we Australians, that we have that on our military record. Not Hollywood, not the Americans. Our blokes were the first to stop the Germans, and they were the first to stop the Japanese. Come our day of military... Yeah, look, yeah, we're true. Yep, yep, we did. That was our blokes. We, ours, yep. We stopped the Germans, we stopped the Japanese. Did we ever tell you, however, about the time we got flogged by the Turks? And it's odd because with the Germans, you have the Holocaust. You know, there's no doubt of right or wrong or good or evil. You know, wherever the Holocaust is, you've got evil. So whoever's fighting against that is on the side of the good. The Japanese, the barbarism of the, the, the militaristic Japanese in 1930, the rape of Nanking and all the rest, again, no problem. When you go to the First World War, it's far more problematic in the words of our erstwhile Prime Minister Paul Keating, the European war, in his words, were European tribalism run amok. And it's not, you know, this was not our fight, not our war. So I went into Gallipoli uh, with one eye askance, particularly of what was it all about? Why, were, why, were, why is it that 100 years later is it, it's still so strongly revered? What was the whole battle about? Because as I... Look, some, sometimes... I'm called an historian. I'm not sure that I'm an historian. I think I'm mostly a storian. I'm in it for the story, and I want my stories to be accurate, however. I, want, uh, I don't want my, my stories on history to be wet Wednesday afternoon in Mr Smithers' history class. I want them to live and breathe. I want them to crackle, but I want them to be backed up by 2,000 footnotes to say this happened. This actually happened. And my point being that if you look at the, pop, the popular image of fiction and the popular image of non-fiction, fiction's dickens. It's fabulous. It's wonderful. It's romantic. It's just, it's fantastic to read a work of genius. And yet when you're reading Great Expectations, there is nevertheless a little voice which says, this didn't happen. There was no Miss Havisham. 
There was no wedding cake. There was no Pip. There was no Estella. However beautifully written it is, it didn't happen. And it was beautifully written. When I was studying Great Expectations, a mate of mine who remained nameless, let's just call him Bruce Yeldon, um, <laughs> confided into me that he'd fallen in love with Estella, which made me sad because I was looking forward to Estella in every part of the book, which made me sad because I knew that Estella loved only me. But it's not true. Whereas non-fiction... My idea, for what it's worth, what I embrace, is to write it in the present tense, to have so much fine detail that the reader feels like they're there, and instead of this little voice which says, this didn't happen, you get a bigger voice which said, this happened, and you link it all together. There's a biographer from Boston whose name escapes me, but there's a wonderful quote. He talks about his style of writing, which is my style of writing. He says... Uh, the king dies and the queen dies is not a story. The king dies and the queen dies from grief, that's a story. So as I'm putting my stuff together, I try to link it up, I try to focus on characters. My big breakthrough in terms of this style of writing came in the year 2000. There was a great American writer by the name, he is a great American writer by the name of Gary Smith. He only writes for Sports Illustrated four times a year every time he writes there's, there's a 50,000 spike in the number of Sports Illustrated that are sold. And I used to look at his stuff, I got to know him in that year 2000, and I had this unpleasant feeling of, his stuff's a lot better than my stuff. Why is his stuff so strong? And he would explain it to me. And it was to use the devices of fiction and apply them to non-fiction. So, so much of non-fiction is, and then they, and then they, and then they, and then they, whereas his, his idea was to make it feel like fiction but to get that big voice. And the best example, if you're interested, and I only say this um, because of, of a literary audience, if you Google Dave, uh, Gary Smith with one art, Gary Smith and uh, David Duval, there's a piece that'll come up. And David Duval is a famously taciturn American golfer. If ever you see him interviewed, it looks like just before the camera's gone upon him, he's just won the American lemon sucking competition. <laughs> yes, what is it? And he wrote this piece. And the opening of this piece of David Duval, every other celebrity interview profile we've ever seen, 10,000 times, 50,000 times, it's of this style. David Duval came into the restaurant. He sat down opposite me. He adjusted his glasses. He looked at me. I looked at him. Other people around the room were saying, I think that's David Duval. So the journalist sets up the scene of the meeting and a knock on the door and it opened up and his lovely wife. This wasn't like that. This was the seven-year-old boy is lying on the bed screaming and screaming and his mother's sitting on his legs and he's writhing around and his father's holding down his shoulders and he's screaming and the needle's driving through his skin into his bones and he's screaming his soul out like that. And you're just minding your own business in the cafe, just reading. And then suddenly you're on a bed with a seven-year-old boy who has a bone marrow disease and twice a day they had to hold him down and drive the needle into his bones to suck out the bad marrow and put in the good marrow, so it's like that. And it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant writing. And so he would explain to me and explain to me how he did it, and I would think I got it, think I got it, think I got it, and then I sort of forgot it. And he went away after the end of the year. He came back in 2001. i just finished my biography of the Wallaby captain, John Eels, and I said, well, you know, I think you're the greatest writer in the world. Have a quick look. And he started reading. He said, you still don't get it, do you, Dumbo? 
Get rid of. Get rid of all these long texts. Get rid of past tense. Make the story live and breathe. So the best example, and as Kiwis, many of you will know, know this story. You'll, you'll remember, of course, second test, 2001. The uh, letter slowed down in Wellington. The Wallabies were losing 19 points to 17. There's a, there's a uh, penalty goal with 30 seconds to go. Johnny Hill slots it for, for, from 45 metres out into a howling gale. As I had written it, it was open quote. I'll never forget, says John. There was 30 seconds to go. The sound of the referee whistle. I looked up. I realised it was our penalty. As I lined it up, I could see the goal both swaying, swaying to the left, etc., etc. That's the way I'd written it. And he said to me, get rid of that, use the information, use the detail, put it in the present tense, have it all accurate, but turn it into a story. And I instantly, you know, after him explaining to me for a year and a half by this point, I got it, I understood it. Couldn't get him out of the house quick enough, here's your hat, watch your hurry, out the door. And I rewrote the entire book in five days and five nights, and so much so that on the third night, my wife came in at two o'clock in the morning and said, darling, you barely slept. Come to bed. To which I replied, and she quotes it back to me, I said to her, darling, I cannot come right now. John and I are just about to ask Lara to marry us. <laughs> um, and so, and we think she's going to say yes. And she did marry us, and we've all lived together happily ever after. And so that was my, that's the way that I go about it. And so in terms of bringing a story to life, I obviously like primary documents, um, I, I read the greats, I read you know, the, the substantial stuff that's been written, taking notes of what I think works, what doesn't work, but I, go, I work with five researchers, uh, two or three of whom are mad, but, um, but they're brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So what was Gallipoli about? And the essence of what Gallipoli about, was about, which is what I always want, I want a wide context. So I want uh, concentric circles, not to just start in my books, I want the battle to start, you know, maybe six or seven chapters into a 12 or 18 chapter book, not in the first bit, because you've got to know why they're there, who they are, make us care about them. And the essence of, of that uh, First World War when it broke out, and I'm doing this for a book I'm doing at the moment on Fromel and Pozier, whereas industrialisation had come to food production, it had come to agriculture, it had come to cars, it had come to mechanics, it had come to, to, to coal, coal manufacturing, it had come everywhere. First World War was when industrialisation came to the slaughter of our fellow humans. And the most fascinating thing for me, basically machine guns, the, they had machine guns that could spit out 10 bullets a second. They had artillery where you could fire a 2,000-pound shell 12 miles. And this had all come in the early part of the 1900s. So when the First World War broke out, uh, neither the Brits, well, particularly the Brits, just didn't realise how far advanced the Germans were on this. And so I've been writing this at the moment. The Battle of Neuve-Chapelle. There was more artillery shells that was, spent in the, that was fired in the first... 35 minutes of that minor battle that had been fired in the entire Boer War all put together. So the Germans, as we remember, flood through Belgium, they flood into France, they basically take out the northeast corner of France. They flood forward, the Brits and the French flood back, and the Western Front is the trenches that are dug around that corner. Why were there trenches? Because when the Germans had machine guns and they were firing 10, bu 10, bullets, a, 10 bullets a second, the only thing you could do to survive was to dig. Now, how are we going to outflank them? We'll dig to the right, they dig to the left. All right, we'll dig to the left, they dig to the right. And so you had in the space of 
several weeks, you had three and a half million men digging trenches. So you had trench warfare with no man's land between. So the next thing that, that comes along is the Brits are feeding in 5,000 men a week. Just, you know, it's a mincing machine. It's awful. It's horrible. And they're dying. And you get to the 13th of January, 1915, at 10 Downing Street, where you've got a meeting of the War Council. And there, it starts at 8 o'clock in the morning. It goes for eight hours before something happens because they're just going through. You know, where are we going to get more men? How are they slaughtered? What are we going to do? And at, at four o'clock in the afternoon, Winston Churchill, the first sea lord, the one who was responsible for the imperial fleet, stands up and he says, well, here's my plan. We've got Western Front. We can just keep feeding in, you know, 5,000 men, 50,000 men. We're not advancing. We've got the imperial fleet. We have not, I'm paraphrasing, but we haven't had a loss in 100 years. You've got the Turks who've joined the Germans. They haven't had a win in 100 years. So why don't we, instead of here on the Western Front, instead of just killing ourselves, why don't we put our resources over here to the Dardanelles? We will send the Imperial Fleet with all its forces, Union Jack waving, we will send them straight up the Dardanelles, a day's sail up there is Constantinople on the left. We'll only have to wave the Union Jack two or three times, they'll give up. They're Turks, they'll give up. There was no respect for the Turks. And by the accounts of the people that were there, there was this instant flurry of brilliant idea, brilliant, instant. And in all of the research I did, the thing that most appalled me, it appalled me then and it appalls me now, is the note written by Herbert Asquith, the British Prime Minister, who was 63 years old, was in love with a 27-year-old by the name of Venetia Stanley, who was acidly referred to by Asquith's wife as the head of his harem. And he writes a note. From that table at four o'clock in the afternoon, my dearest darling Venetia, I can't wait to see you this evening. Winston's come up with a wonderful idea. I can't wait to tell you all about it to see if it meets with your approval. You're damn right to see if it meets with her approval, mate. 35,000 British soldiers, brave British soldiers, died in that exercise. 3,000 Kiwis died. 9,000 Australians died. 90,000 Turks died in that exercise. Who gets to look at it first? Manisha Stanley. Nothing to, to do with her. But this was the boneheadedness. This was the system. This was the imperialism. This was colonialism. This was everything in that decision that wasn't consultative. Why weren't, why weren't before your Kiwis were sent in, your brave Kiwi soldiers, why wasn't the British cap, why wasn't the New Zealand cabinet, why wasn't the New Zealand prime minister consulted, why wasn't the Australian prime minister, Australian cabinet? Our people didn't find out about it till the 8th of May. Okay, so they land on the 25th. Nothing can we send your troops in. This was what was known. And in the battle, if I'm getting a bit passionate about it, I do get passionate about it because you'd see the diary entries of the mothers and the fathers and the brothers and the sisters to see what happened and the way that they were wantonly slaughtered for no gain. And I do get angry about it. And I think that that, in too many ways, is what's been lacking in some of the accounts thereof. It was outrageous, absolutely outrageous, the slaughter done on both sides by people in positions of power who were not sufficiently caring of the human humanity that they were dealing with. So we get to 
the 18th, the 19th of March, here is the Imperial Fleet. It goes up. The Turks, for all their sins, for all the fact that the Ottoman Empire was on its knees, they were still a people of 400 years of martial tradition. They knew what they were doing. They had brave men who were prepared to sacrifice their lives. So as the Imperial Fleet goes up, they have forts on both sides, they have mines, and they hit the mines, the forts fire upon them, they lose four ships, including one French ship. So the Imperial Fleet, for the first time in 100 years, turns tail. We commemorate Anzac Day, the Turks celebrate the Battle of Kanakli. They brought the British Empire to its knees on that battle. Suddenly we're back at 10 Downing Street, what are we going to do? The problem is we've got forts either side of the Dardanelles. The only thing we can do is land 150,000 men on this Dardanelles Peninsula. We'll have the French land over here in a small feint, an F-E-I-N-T, but the real guts of it will be the Brits will land here, the Australians and the Kiwis will land up there at Anzac Cove, the Brits will push up here, the Australians and the Kiwis will push across, we will isolate the Turks, we should be in Constantinople in three days. So the Australian troops and the Kiwi troops were given Turkish money and instructions how to deal with Turkish villages. I mean, amazing, amazing. And so on the morning, we all know the story very well, on the 25th of April, uh, our blokes land at dawn, your blokes land, I think, at about 10 o'clock, and I love, of all, the, of all of your people, the one I love most is Colonel William Malone. I don't know if he's iconic in New Zealand, but he should be. Um, and of the Wellington Battalion, a magnificent man. And anyway, they land, and the tragedy is that after that first day's battle... There are 700 casualties among the Kiwis. There are 2,000 casualties among the Australians. So nudging up towards 3,000 casualties at the end of that first day. How much land had we taken? 400 acres between our two. 400 acres. And we'd lost 3,000 men casualties. So probably about 1,500 men killed, maybe 1,000 killed at the end of that first day for 400 acres. Eight months later, 9,000 dead Australians, 3,000 dead Kiwis. How much land do we have then? 400 acres. Hadn't moved a bit. So this goes on, this battle goes on. And the, uh, the, the irony, the tragic irony of what occurred was that the whole point of coming over here was to get away from trench warfare. What happened? The trench warfare on the Western Front. What happened? Trench warfare. After a month, everybody had dug around that fort. Well, after a day, the, 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 the contours were there. They were digging. Some spots are only 15 yards apart. And the problem is, here in no man's land, you had 2,000 dead soldiers. So after a month, nobody, neither side, could bear it. Uh, the stench. So a truce was arranged on the morning of the 24th of May. And you've got to imagine the scene. You know, the shots fired, and slowly the whistle's blown, and up they come, the Australians and the Kiwis sort of barely daring to believe they're not about to be riddled with bullets, walk, and here come the Turks, and everybody's got shovels, and they meet in the middle of no man's land. And the Turks have one question for the Anzacs. It is, who are you? What are you doing here? And they explain, well, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, try to explain, and they look at the... And, and the Turks couldn't quite get their head around it. Australians, New Zealand's mostly volunteers, well, all volunteers, which was rare in that, in that First World War. And the Turks were compelled to be there. They couldn't understand why, you know, why are you in this hell on earth when you don't have to be there? And the Australians and the Kiwis, for their part, look at the Turks and go, funny thing is, you blokes look a lot like us. 
You know, we're, we're sort of raised in a way to think of you as inhuman and evil and stunted and the rest of it, but you just, Jesus, you bastards fight too. You know, I mean, we've thrown everything we can at you. You've thrown everything. There was a nascent respect between the two, so much so that three days later, after the, so they bury their dead, three days later, the Anzacs are back in their trenches and this <laughs> lands just in front of the Anzac trenches. And for the first time, it doesn't explode throw out a grappling hooks, pull it in, and they open it up. And there, in very bad French, is a note from the Turks, and it says, Pour notre erol on me, for our heroic enemy in Qatar. They open it up, and what is it? Turkish cigarettes. And they hand them around, they smoke them. Not bad, much better than those camel dung cigarettes. From Cairo, what have we got to give them? So they wrap up the only thing they have to give, which is cans of bully beef all of which are marked with the use-by date, use-by end of Boer War, 15 years ago. That's what they have. They have it, you know, they've been breakfast, lunch and dinner. They wrap up the bully beef. They hoik it over to the Turks. And three minutes later, boom, the same package comes back with a note in perfect English and it says, no more bully beef. <laughs> so you get to... That they then, they then face off for the summer, and by the time of the summer, again, the Turks have their supplies of wells, they have their creeks, they have, they have a plentiful supply of water. Every ounce of water that the Australians and the Kiwis have has to come via, has to come via ship. And they're isolated, and it's hell on earth, and there is dysentery, the Gallipoli Gallop, um, the most appalling detail. I'm saying this to you before you have lunch. At one point, there's a scene where they, they, they've dug the latrines, and a man fell into the latrines, and they couldn't, they just didn't have the strength to pull him out. I mean, they were, they were emaciated, they were dying there. And so the next idea is, what's the next brilliant idea? All right, we've got the, we've got the Brits here at Cape Hellas who haven't moved. We've got the Anzacs there at Anzac Cove. Just up the way, about four miles, is Suvla Bay. So we'll land 50,000 Brits there. And same thing, OK? We'll get the, 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 the Brits all down here at Cape Hellas will push up a bit. The Anzacs at Lone Pine... And uh, the Battle of the Neck um, and Chanak Bear, we can, uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do a lot of activity there to bring all the Turkish attention while we land 50,000. And so that is where, why I admire your man, Colonel William Malone, because the whole plan of Chanak Bear was to, for them to break out of Anzac Cove, to go round, to come up to the highest point, which is the highest point on the Dardanelles, Chanak Bear, where you can actually see the, the Dardanelles. And... William Malone at one point with the Wellington Battalion, I think it was about four o'clock in the afternoon of the 7th of August, is told by the, by the British general to, to send your men over the top into that withering fire. And Colonel William Malone said, no, we will fight this. I'm paraphrasing again. We will fight and we will fight hard, but I'm not sending them into that. Wanton, you know, there's no chance that they can survive that. No. And he says, men, stand down. The men stood down because it was crazy. And then he, he only did attack after the artillery um, had quelled some of the defence. And William Malone with the, with the, with the Wellington, they took Chunuk Bear, they got into the trenches, they held it throughout the day. And for the first time, the only time, they could actually see the promised land, which is the Dardanelles. And tragically, William Malone was killed, I think it was about five o'clock in the afternoon of the 8th. And is he well known in New Zealand? Is he? Yeah. Is he sort of like a legend, an icon? Because I, I I'd never heard of him from Australia, but I, everything I read about him and the letters he wrote to his wife was such a tragedy that he died. Meantime, the Australians are that morning on the 7th in the Battle of the Neck. And it is 
about the distance across this stage, about the distance of a tennis court. We had one trench along here, and as described by Charles Bean, the great Australian historian, the attack of the neck, the battle of the neck, was like men charging across the handle of an upturned frying pan. So here's the frying pan, and the Turks are tiered in the hill before them. And it's, the plan is we're going to have four waves of Australians, 150 in each wave, and two minutes apart, and they'll have no bullets. It'll be bayonet job, and they'll just charge across and they'll stick the Turks. How are we going to make sure the Turks don't kill us? We'll put artillery on them for half an hour, from 4 o'clock in the morning till 4.30. So that's what happens, morning of the 7th. Our blokes are down there, and the artillery starts. The bombardment starts at 4 a.m. Furious barrage. Bang, 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 bang. And it's just horrible. And our blokes are putting on their bayonets and, and making sure, shaking hands with each other. And then suddenly at 4.23, silence, absolute silence. Colonel Alexander White, who was the head of the 10th Light Horse, had been shaking the hands of his men and said, Men, you have 10 minutes to live, and I am going over with you. And at 4.23, it stops. And now why was there seven minutes of silence? Nobody knows. But what it means is the Turks come up out of their trenches to go, well, we've just had a barrage. Obviously, they're coming for us. Fire off a few practice rounds. So there are our blokes with their heads below the level of the sandbags in the trenches. And the Turkish gunners are playing the, playing the piano effectively over the top of it. Can you imagine being down there with it? The idea was, the quote was, that if you'd thrown a hat up into it, it would have been blown apart. And there they are at 4.30. What are we going to do? We're going to follow waters. At 4.30, and over they go. And the witnesses said it was like their legs were made of spaghetti as they were blown back into the trench onto the second wave. Over they go, blown apart. Before the third wave went over, the Turkish gunners shouted out in the sepulchral silence of dawn, Duh! 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 Don't, 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 for God's sake, do not keep coming onto our guns. One man shook the hands of the man next to him and said, Goodbye, Cobber, and God bless you. <coughs> Over they go, torn apart. Four waves, it was effectively three and a half waves. <coughs> torn apart, 350 men killed in the space of just a few minutes. Not a yard gained. Madness, absolute madness. And so it went on until the father of Rupert Murdoch, Keith Murdoch, got to Gallipoli in the early part of September. He's a journalist. He looks around and he says, well, this looks to me like a disaster about to become a catastrophe. Everybody says it's a disaster about to become a catastrophe. We're still here at the winter. You know, the summer's killed off half of us. The winter will kill the rest. And Murdoch says, well, you know, we've got to do something. Why aren't you writing this? And the answer was censorship won't let us write it. So Murdoch says, I'm only here for four days. He gets... Uh, Ellis Ashmead Bartlett, who was the famous British journalist, to write a 29-page letter. And Murdoch says, I'll get to London, I'll knock on doors. Puts it in his pocket. He's overheard. Murdoch is uh, arrested in Marseille. They take the letter off him. He gets to London. He writes the letter again under his own name. He knocks on doors. He goes to see the British Prime Minister. And what he says to them with a great deal of passion is, you think the amount of men you've lost now is a disaster. If you leave them there for winter, you know, you've got to live to fight another day. So the evacuation uh, started on the 8th of December. Finally, the British Cabinet signs off it on the 7th of December. The evacuation begins on the 8th. And against all odds... They don't lose a man. <coughs> they don't, don't lose a single man in the evacuation. It was the one triumph of the peace. And my favourite uh, yarn out of, out of the end of it, in, uh, 
I'm, uh, I was at a Republican lunch at, uh, at, uh, in, in Australia in May and I was sitting next to our erstwhile Prime Minister Bob Hawke and I asked him what was the most moving time of your Prime Ministership and he didn't know I'd been writing a book on Gallipoli. He said, oh, well, 75th anniversary of Gallipoli. Uh, Australia flew back 58 diggers, 95 years old. They fly them back to Turkey with all of their carers and their walkers and their walking sticks and uh, they fly them back and Bob, Bob Hawke's account, they get them to Istanbul, get them in the big buses and they pull up 75 years later to the day. Big bus and our blokes, old blokes, 95 years old. Psh, psh, psh. They get out of these shiny buses. There is no... They look up, Anzac Cove, there is the Aegean Sea, there is Chanak Bear over there, there is the Sphinx, uh, Gaba Tepe, Everything's as it were. And then they hear cheering. They look, and there is 4,000 backpackers. One of them, yeah, you bloody beauty, you're here, you got it. You know, fantastic. And then the most amazing thing, they look over there, and there on the other side of where no man's land used to be are two shiny Turkish buses. And out of the Turkish buses are getting 105 old Turkish soldiers. And the two groups, like a Steven Spielberg movie, walk towards each other across the same no-man's land that they had first met. And uh, they get to the middle. And our blokes put out their hands, let bygones be bygones, put it there. The Turks, not good enough for them. Brush away their hands. They go the grope. They're into them. They kiss them on both cheeks. They hug. They kiss. They swap. They move around. And it was something, the empathy between the two sides that were there 75 years on. Um, it, in the end, a staggering saga from first to last. When I was nearing the end, one of my researchers is a very strong feminist. I'm a strong feminist myself, not as strong as her, but she made a very interesting point. She said that there were, there were not enough women in my account, and they're frequently in war stories, there are not enough women. And I thought, well, I've got a good one, so I put it in, and the story was one of the 25 Anzac nurses was sent there, Kathleen Turner. She was from Orange in New South Wales. She... Uh, fell in love with uh, Lieutenant Gordon Carter of the 30th Battalion uh, in, in Cairo. And uh, on the day of the landing, she's in a hospital ship, the Cecilia, and she's up to her arms in human gore. And Gordon Carter, Lieutenant Gordon Carter, has hit the shores. And of all of her agony, what she goes through that day, there's a constant agony. Is it going to be Gordon? Is it going to be Gordon? Cleaning up, is it Gordon? This goes on effectively for eight months. Twice he is shot, twice he's evacuated. They see each other for about ten minutes only. Finally, he gets out alive. She gets back alive. He asks her to marry him. He, she says, yes, you bloody beauty. And they get married and their first son uh, is, is conceived on the 11th of November. 1918, is there a better way, I ask myself, to celebrate the armistice than that? <laughs> He's conceived on the 11th of November. And in terms of boasting rights in Australia, to say my dad was at Gallipoli, it's not a bad boast, but to say my dad eh, and my mum was at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915, that's not a bad pedigree. I was conceived on the 11th of November 1918. He turned into a rat of Tobruk, He's still alive, and he's my Uncle Ted. So I, I threw that in, and I'll just say one more. I, one, I'm, I'll just say one last story to finish before I take questions. Graham, I must say you've barely let me get a word in edgeways. <laughs> one last, one last story. Uh, the, the commander of the Seventh Battalion was General Pompey Elliott, 
Fantastic man. And when the Anzacs were there, you blokes, we were in Mina Camp, you were in Marty, M-A-A-D-I. And the Kiwis and the Australians, basically the Kiwis were a more professional band of soldiers. I think we were much more butcher, baker, candlestick maker, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. But it was noted that the Kiwis were likely more professionally prepared. And we... uh, we needed a lot of training, and one day in December, this is well before going to Gallipoli, but just training in the, in the shade of the pyramids, or no shade, our blokes are marching along, marching along in the sun, it's beating down, and their boots are picking up red dust, and they're coughing and they're choking, and the sweat's coming down their sides, and they're hating it. This pommy captain out the front, left, left, right, left, and they're hating it, and they pass this group of hawkers, Egyptian hawkers, selling their wares with their donkeys on their left, and at the moment that the Australians pass, one of the male donkeys gets into too close proximity to one of the female donkeys, and the male donkey gets very excited, and the measure of the excitement was said to be two feet long. So our blokes are digging each other in the ribs, laughing and sneering unpleasantly, it has to be said, at which point the Egyptian hawker reaches out, grabs the offending donkey by the right ear and gives it a vicious twist, at which point the excitement dies. They march on. Two minutes later, they come to a, uh, two beautiful English ladies out for their morning constitutional in a horse and buggy, and the English captain knows them. Company, halt! Mm-hmm. And he starts talking to them, and they've got their fans, and they're smiling coquettishly, and everything's going brilliantly for the pommy captain until one of the Australians calls out, in an accent well west of Galagamone, calls out, Sergeant, twist his right ear. <laughs> Thank you. And I uh, thank you. I do want to say that it's been terrific. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed how many people have turned up. And uh, I thank you. It's been an honour and a privilege. I don't hijack this occasion. I'm not going to beg you to read my book. Or I'm quite serious about this. I seriously, seriously, seriously do not care whether you do or don't read my book. All I care is that you buy my book. <laughs> thank you and goodbye. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.